You are not alone. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. You are not alone. Yes, there are times when we feel alone. There are times when we think we're alone. I mean, we've all been there before, right? And that's a terrible place to be, isn't it? When you feel like you're all alone, like you have no friends, like nobody cares, like it wouldn't make a difference, and maybe no one would even notice if you just disappeared alone. It's a terrible feeling, but it's just that, a feeling. Because we know from God's word that we are never alone. Jesus is always with us. The spirit of God lives inside of us. And we have one another. The church, the people of God, the family of God. And so we truly, really are never alone. But sometimes life is hard and you really do feel alone. And friendships can sour, and people can turn on you, and people can betray you, and misunderstand you, and slander you, and gossip about you. Sometimes even close friends can become enemies. And that's David in Psalm 35. So turn there in your Bibles. In Psalm 35, David is hurting. People are rooting for him to fail. People have betrayed him, they've turned their back on him, and he feels all alone. You've probably been there before. Maybe, maybe you're there today, like right now. Maybe you came in here today feeling so alone. Maybe you're married, but you feel alone. Maybe you, you, you have siblings, you feel alone. Maybe you have roommates, maybe you have a family you work places with people, yet you still feel very much alone. Psalm 35 is for you. Psalm 35 is in the Bible. God put Psalm 35 in the Bible just for you and just for what you're feeling today. We're just going to cover the first 16 verses today and then we'll finish it next week. In Psalm 35, David is going to call on Yahweh, God, to show up in his life like one of those WWE professional wrestlers. You know how they come running out from backstage to help their friend who's in the wrestling ring and he's getting jumped by four or five other people? Um, it's planned. You know that, right? And he comes running out uh, to save a friend. That's what David's going to do. So it helps if you know professional wrestling to understand Psalm 35 today. If you don't, I'll try to unpack it for you. It helps to know a little bit of pro wrestling. So Psalm 35, if you hear me say Yahweh when we come to the word Lord, just if you're visiting and don't know this, if it's Lord in all capital letters in your English translations is the English translators telling us that in the original Hebrew language, this is God's name, Yahweh, his covenant name. Okay, so Jesus' name is a form of Joshua, and Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. So we say Yahweh here because this is God's name, and he gave it to us. So if you hear me say Yahweh, when you read, me, when you read Lord, you'll know why. Okay, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. David is not playing around here in Psalm 35. He's not playing nice with this psalm. So this is not some kind of Fisher Price psalm. This is not some PBS Mr. Rogers neighborhood kind of prayer. This is a WWE Hulk Hogan kind of prayer. I hope you all know who Hulk Hogan is. It's like David is being beat up in the wrestling ring by a group of men and then suddenly the music starts and tips the audience off that someone is backstage and they come running out and it's Hulk Hogan to save the day. In Psalm 35, David doesn't need a soft-handed savior. David needs Yahweh, the warrior, the ultimate warrior, to show up. He actually asks God to fight with those who are fighting him. And not just fight, but he wants God to use weapons. I mean, show up packing is what he's saying. David asked Yahweh to show up with a small hand shield. That's the buckler, in case you were wondering what the buckler was. When David says, take hold of shield and buckler. The buckler is the small shield you'd wear in your hand. And then the other shield is the bigger one that covers the whole body. So David is saying, I need total protection from you, Lord, from these people. But David also asked Jesus to pull out a spear and javelin and throw them at his enemies. David needs a warrior Jesus to show up, not some metrosexual Jesus with perfect hair and soft hands that smell like strawberry lotion from Bed Bath and Beyond. David needs a Jesus that has rough hands, coarse hands, blistered hands. He needs a Jesus who not only has muscles, but who is not afraid to flex them and use them. He needs a Jesus who can do 100 push-ups straight. Not some soft, wimpy Jesus. Is that how you view Jesus? Do you view Jesus as some kind of softy, kind of a wimp, kind of a pushover? Or can you believe that he is a warrior who comes to the defense of his people? One of those Jesuses can help you walk through fire. The other one, not so much. Now, You might struggle with some of the things in Psalm 35 that David says. He actually sends in a prayer request to the church office and is like, put this on the prayer list. Please pray that the Lord would throw javelins and spears at my enemies. Don't do that this week, okay? Or maybe if you did it, we would do it. I don't know. But David, David, he asks, he sends in a prayer request like that. But David actually prays in line with God's character. He prays in line with God's word. He prays that Yahweh would stop these people who are pestering him. But David doesn't say it that nice. Like, please, have these people stop pestering me. David doesn't say, please make them stop, Lord. David actually says, draw your spear and javelin and start throwing, Lord. Find a target. It's as if David wants to say to us, hey, Christian, you do not pray to a wimp. You do not pray to a God who has soft hands that smell like strawberry lotion. You pray to a warrior. 
And this is why it is important to know theology, why it's important to know doctrine, why it's important to know God's word. This is why it's important to know God. Listen, we must know what God is like if we are to pray accurately. We must know the God we are praying to. David knows who Yahweh is, and that then forms and shapes his prayers, how he prays, what he asks God for. So David is instructing us on how to pray when life gets ugly. Number one, know who God is, know what he is like, and then tell him what's troubling you. Know who God is. Do you know him? Do you know what he's like? And then tell him What is troubling you? David knows that God hates lying. David knows that God hates murder. David knows that God hates evil. David knows that God hates false witnesses. These are all the things that David is dealing with in Psalm 35. And David knows that God hates these things. He knows this about Yahweh. So he prays that Yahweh would intervene and do something about these things that Yahweh hates. David is praying that the Lord would step into his world and make wrong things right. But David is praying that Jesus would do it with the spear and javelin. (laughs) Does it bother you that David prays this way? Does it bother you to pray this way? Understand that the only way David is going to be delivered from these people is if he prays this way. He can't stop this smear campaign on his own. I mean, stuff's already out there on the internet. He can't delete that stuff. It's gone viral. All David can do is pray. And he doesn't pray that his enemies would just simply move to another town. He prays that Yahweh would deal with them because he can't have any peace until these guys are taken out. He can't have any peace until Yahweh's spear finds a home, if you know what I mean. Listen, if you want prayer to be all rosy and refined and, and kind and, you know, kind of like some Victorian, let's get together and drink some tea and eat some scones or biscuits, maybe. If you want prayer to be like that, you're not going to like the book of Psalms. You might as well leave this book because this book does not hold anything back. Prayer has to be tough. Prayer has to wear a black leather jacket, ride a Harley Davidson, and wear brass knuckles sometimes. Why? Here's why. Because prayer has to deal with evil. Prayer has to deal with the evil that exists in our world. Prayer has to drive into the rough part of town. Sometimes you don't pray like Mr. Rogers. You pray like Hulk Hogan. So in prayer, we are asking God to deal with the evil we hate and the evil that he hates. And no one ever asks that their enemies get a pass, do they? I mean, no one prays, well, they, I mean, they are kind of nice people. They do keep their lawn well manicured. How about this, God? Let's send them on a nice vacation, put them up in a luxurious hotel for a week. Whatever you do, just get them out of my life. No, when people are spreading lies about you, When people want to kill you, like what David is facing in this psalm, you pray something like, throw a spear at them, Jesus. Figuratively or literally, Lord, I don't care. Just deal with them, Jesus. That's what David's saying. 
And if that makes you uncomfortable, you should probably skip over the Psalms in your Bible because there's a whole bunch of Psalms that are not going to let you walk past them without getting in your face and saying to you, deal with me, pray like me. Actually, the entire Old Testament won't let you get away from these kinds of prayers. And neither will the New Testament, as if Jesus became this softy in the New Testament. We just read the book of Revelation. When you are dealing with evil, your prayers need a little more spine. When you're dealing with the evils in this world, your prayers need a little more spine. Now, please understand this, because some of you, this may be a new concept. You may be thinking, I thought Jesus said love our enemies and to pray for them. Okay, so if you're kind of on the edge and uncomfortable, let me, let's talk about this. This does not mean that you pray this way about a neighbor who gets on your nerves, okay? So right now, some of you are like, ah, I can't pray this about my neighbor. He's driving me nuts. Pastor, you had me. No, this does not mean that you can pray this kind of prayer for someone who just simply gets on your nerves. I'm not saying that you pray that Jesus would throw a spear at your coworker who smacks when they're eating in the break room, okay? This is not a voodoo doll type prayer. David is bothered about the injustices. That's a key word, the injustices that he's suffering. Lies, the smear campaign, the gossip the slander, the evil, the murderous plots they have. And that's the key to understanding these, they're called imprecatory prayers. Comes from the Latin, I think, which means to pray toward. So these are, scholars call them the imprecatory prayers. They are prayers about God dealing with evil and injustices. So David is bothered by these people, obviously, but I would say that he's even angry about these injustices. He's not divorced from his feelings. He's angry about what is happening in his life and in his world. And we, too, should be angry about injustices in this world. But we must always remember that sometimes our anger does not sync up with God's anger. Sometimes our anger doesn't sync up with God's anger. So that means that we can't just be angry at a coworker who smacks when they eat and then ask Jesus to throw a javelin at them. That kind of anger is not synced up with God's anger. David Pallison said, Your anger is godlike to the degree you treasure justice and fairness and are alert to betrayal and falsehood. Your anger is devil-like to the degree you play God and are merciless, argumentative, and unfair. So David is not being merciless here in Psalm 35. He wants justice. He hates what God hates, and he wants God to do something about it. That's a good prayer to pray. God, I hate this thing, and I know you hate it because your word tells me, do something about it. He hates what God hates, and he's asking God to do something about it. But David isn't just focused on spears and javelins piercing other people's hearts. He's also focused on his own heart here. He needs Yahweh to encourage his own heart. That's why he prays in verse 3, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. 
David knows that God hates evil and lies and malice, so David prays that God do something about it. But David also knows that it might take God a while. David knows that God doesn't go according to our timetables. David knows that he might have to wait and wait and wait for Yahweh to start throwing spears. And that's why he prays that God would speak to his heart and tell him that he is his salvation. David needs a word of hope while he waits, while he waits for God to deal with the injustices and evil that he sees in his world and that are very personal in his own life. So it's as if David is saying, start throwing spears at these guys because you hate what they're doing. But if you take your time, Please speak to my soul again and tell me that you are my salvation. Remind me that you are my Savior. That truth will carry me through while I wait for these wrongs to be righted. Listen, maybe Jesus is not responding to your prayers like you like or as fast as you wish. Maybe it seems like Jesus is dragging his feet in response to your prayers. If so... Hear Jesus say to you today, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. And then hear Jesus say this to you too. You are not alone. And that might be enough truth to hold you over until Jesus intervenes in your life. So in verses 1 to 3, David says, attack them but encourage me, encourage my heart. But then David goes on in verses four through seven to tell Yahweh what to do and why Yahweh should do it. So he spills a little more ink on what he wants the Lord to do to these people. Look at verse four. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of Yahweh driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Notice that David uses the phrase without cause two times in verse 19, I mean in verse 7, and then I think he ends up using it again one more time in this psalm. Without cause, that phrase implies David's innocence. These people have no justified reason why they are hating on David. And so this little phrase, without cause, is actually interesting because God uses it in Job chapter 2 verse 3, When God speaks to Satan after he has destroyed all that Job has. Here's Job 2.3. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Same phrase. Now this could be a whole other sermon But does not this phrase imply that sometimes we may have to endure suffering for which there is no reason given? Sometimes in this fallen world that we live in, 
We have to endure suffering for which we are given no reason why whatsoever. God doesn't come down and say, this is why this is happening in your life. It's crickets. We don't know why. Why did that happen to that person? Why did this happen? We may suffer without reason. We may be attacked by people without cause. Now, of course, God knows why we suffer what we suffer. But in this life, we may never know why. And that's humbling. God may never tell us why we have to undergo certain trials. He may never tell us why we have to suffer for months, maybe years, maybe even decades. It's without reason. We may never know why we have to go through what we go through, but that doesn't mean, it does not mean that we can't trust God as we suffer. We can trust him because he is good, he is wise, he is faithful, he is sovereign. He does what he does in this world for his glory and for our good. And when we can't see that in real time, that he's doing stuff for his glory and that he's doing stuff for our good, when we cannot see that in real time because we are suffering without reason, we can still trust him. That said, I do believe one day Jesus will make it known to us. I don't have a a verse for this. I just have an imagination, okay? So call it Benji 213 or something. I don't know. I like to picture Jesus on the new earth walking with each of us. Maybe there's a time where it's just us and him walking on the beach or whatever you like, your setting. And he puts his arm around our shoulder and he says, hey, let me tell you why you went through that. Here's what I was doing. Here's how I got glory through it. Here's how I brought good through it. I had a purpose in it even though you could not see it then. I think we will know one day, and we'll see it then. We'll understand, but we might not know in this world. It might be without reason. But we know that God has a purpose in everything that we have to go through. So understand this. From our perspective on this side of eternity, sometimes we may have to label our suffering as without reason. You may have to get out... uh, proverbial label maker and type in without reason and print and and stick that label on whatever it is that you're suffering and saying, I don't have a reason for why this is happening, but I trust Jesus. So I'm just going to label it as without reason, knowing I may never know, but I know that I know God and I know how to pray as I go through something that I'm doing, going through without reason, and I know that I can trust him. Now, of course, God has reasons. He probably has lots and lots of reasons of why we go through what we go through. But we may not know them on this side of eternity. However, we can still trust him. Even when people attack us without cause, without reason, like David in Psalm 35. He's being attacked without cause. There is no justification for all the evil that they have planned. They have zero reasons to be treating David this way. Yes, he is a sinner. He, will t- he, told, he told us in Psalm 32, he's a sinner. He's not denying that. But in this situation... David has done nothing wrong. These people maybe have made some assumptions about David. Maybe they don't like him. They don't like his personality. 
if he wrote this when he was king, they're like, I mean, when you're a leader, automatically 50% of the people hate you, right? Maybe there's been some kind of misunderstanding. For some reason, these people hate David. He's done nothing wrong, but they are after him. And that happens in life, right? But these people take it even further. They are planning evil. They are trying to trap David. They are digging pits and hoping he falls in. They have laid out nets, hoping to trap him. What they are doing is evil. And so David piles up all of these let them prayers in verses 4 through 8. Let their plans blow up in their face. Let them eat their own words. Let their plans backfire. In short, he's saying, let them be toast. Finish them off, Lord. In fact, David actually prays that the angel of the Lord would sick them. Do y'all know sick them? I mean, that's something you do in the South. Like sick them, you would, you would, you would grow up in the country. You would, if you didn't like somebody, you could sick your dog on them, right? I didn't do that, okay? You could sick them. David's saying, sick them, Lord, to the angel of the Lord. Chase them down. Cause them to fall to their own destruction. Throw a spear at them, Lord. Totally destroy them. How's that for a prayer of confession and celebration? Again, this might make us uncomfortable. We may not be used to praying this way. But don't you want a God who intervenes in our world and brings justice? Don't you want that? Don't you want a God you can pray to who hates evil? Don't you want a God who does get involved and deal with the evil in his world, in his time, and in his way? I mean, even if it comes to a javelin, don't you want that? Ralph Davis, Old Testament commentator, is very helpful as he comments on the severity of God's judgment in the Old Testament. He says, if people have difficulty with God's judgment here, it is, I think, a matter of taste rather than substance. They will likely raise the bogey of the quote-unquote Old Testament God, blowing people away for the slightest offense and dropping folks in their tracks for minor slips. But it's all a smokescreen by folks who don't read the whole Bible. What do they do with the quote-unquote New Testament God who arranges a double funeral because folks fudged about a real estate deal, Acts 5? Why did folks at Corinth end up in the ER or the morgue because of a little arrogance at the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11? Why the severity of Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12? Quote-unquote difficulties with Old Testament narrative often reveal more about us than about the Old Testament. We tend to get irritated if God doesn't fit our notions of what he ought to be. We don't, truth be told, want some God we have to fear, which is to say we don't want the real God. Don't be afraid to wade into the nasty narratives of the Old Testament, for it's in the nasty stuff you'll find the God of scary holiness and incredible grace waiting to reveal himself. Psalm 35 should remind you that Jesus is both a God of scary holiness and a God of incredible grace. The God of scary holiness throws spears and javelins at the wicked who don't repent and he'll do it forever in hell. And the God of incredible grace takes the spear and javelin unto himself on the cross for wicked people like us. I hope you know the God of incredible grace. You can today just 
call out to him, come as you are. Come as your wicked self and receive incredible grace, incredible forgiveness, incredible kindness, incredible love from Jesus, the God of scary holiness. You can receive incredible grace today for free. You just have to fess up and say, I am bad. Won't you come to Jesus today? He loves you. He'll forgive you. And then you know what? He'll just hug you and squeeze you so tight. Won't you come to him today if you haven't? If you do come to Jesus today, or maybe you're already a Christian and you've already come to Jesus, then you'll understand what David says next. Look at verse 9. Then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Yahweh, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. If Yahweh starts throwing spears on David's behalf, David says he'll start throwing praise God's way. David says his soul will rejoice. In fact, he says his bones His bones will join the worship team. What he means is that he will praise Yahweh with all of his being. His whole skeleton will say, we're having church today. He will feel deliverance in his bones and said bones will be asking Chet if they can join the worship team. Make a clicking sound or something. That's what God's deliverance should do for us. That's how we should respond when God answers our prayers. Rejoicing, exalting, skeletal system singing. To quote Ralph Davis again, he says, Too many times David knows he was little more than roadkill on life's pavements. And Yahweh scraped him up and put him on his feet. And when that happens repeatedly, it infuses love with exuberance. There's something about being delivered. There's something about Jesus answering your prayers that kind of infuses your love for Jesus with joy and with energy and with exuberance. There's something about being delivered that makes your bones want to sing. Your bones want to rejoice. There's something about Jesus answering your prayers that makes your bones want to join Chet and company on stage. There's something about Jesus coming through for you with his javelin that makes you say, who is this God? Which is what David says here. Sometimes you've got to stop like David and say, oh Lord, who is like you? Sometimes you have to stop asking why Why is this happening? What is the reason for my suffering? How long, O Lord, must I suffer? And you start asking, who? Who is like you, O Lord? That's a recalibrating question when you're suffering. That's a question that can stabilize your heart when you suffer. Who is like our God? Who is like Jesus? And the answer is nobody. If David could be here today, he'd tell you, Tell God what you'll do if he answers your prayers. Tell him that you will praise him if he intervenes. Tell him that your bones will join the worship team if he comes through for you. Try it sometime. Okay, let's keep going. Look at verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. 
They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed bowed down on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. And we don't know who these people were, but David knew them well enough that when they were sick and suffering, he fasted and prayed for their healing. So there must have been some kind of relationship, whatever the depth of it was. Maybe they weren't BFFs, but there was a relationship there. And David walked with them through their suffering. And now that has changed. They're against David. They can't remember how David walked beside them and ministered to them. They have turned on David. And that can happen in life, right? People that you once knew and were close to and that you walked beside during trials and that you ministered to can suddenly turn on you and become vicious. They can hate you. They can want in their hearts, want to see your downfall. They can even go so far as to make plans to see you fail and crash and burn. And that's David here. And that's the Christian life sometimes. David Pallison said, betrayal, losses, and backstabbing aren't surprising. Growing in Christ is to suffer some. Every disciple will experience these at some point in their lives. Someone close to you will betray you. You will lose out. People will backstab you. They will gossip about you. They will slander you. It's one of the costs of following Jesus. It's part of taking up your cross and carrying it as you follow him. It's a part of growing in Christ. Betrayal, losses, backstabbing are some of the things that you experience on the path of discipleship. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? And no surprise though, right? Because Jesus himself endured all of this. The night before his crucifixion, hours before his crucifixion, one of Jesus' best friends betrayed him. Hours before his death, Jesus experienced betrayal, losses, and backstabbing. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about the emotional toil that it took on toll? I put toil. Emotional toll that it took on Jesus as he was preparing to die on the cross for our sins. One of his very close friends that he'd walked with for three years, Judas, betrayed him and sold him out for a few hundred bucks. And then the rest of Jesus' close friends all abandoned him and actually ran away when he was arrested. And then Peter denied him three times using cuss words, Mark tells us in his gospel. He was dropping F-bombs and swearing he didn't know this guy, Jesus. So Jesus knows what all this is like. Jesus knows betrayal, losses, backstabbing. He endured all of it hours before his death. As if he had enough on his heart at that moment, bearing, knowing he was going to bear the penalty for our sin, his best friends all turned on him. And that's what David is experiencing here in Psalm 35. He feels all alone. In fact, in verse 12, he says, my soul is bereft. In Hebrew, it's literally, 
This is what it is in Hebrew. Childlessness of my soul. I have childlessness of my soul. David feels so alone. He feels like his soul is childless, like his soul has no kids. It's just him and him, nobody else. And if you've ever been there where you feel absolutely all alone, even though you're surrounded by people, then you know the pain and you know the sadness and you know the despair that David is feeling here. It's one of the most painful experiences, the most painful things to experience in this world is loneliness because the loneliness is childlessness of soul. Ed Welch says, betrayal, ridicule, shame, gossip, their power is in how they distance us from others. Being misunderstood or not known is a low-grade version of aloneness. Of all the types of suffering, this, feeling alone, is the one that is most painful and least discussed. Is there anything better than unity, fellowship, true friendship, knowing and being known, God with us, Christ in you, my people, and the hundreds of other expressions of not alone? Sin separates and isolates us from God and others. Redemption breaks down barriers and makes us one. Jesus makes the aloneness unity dimension among the most critical for us. He comforts those who will feel alone when he is crucified by reminding them that his death will be the way toward not alone. Alone gets to the very heart of the human predicament. And not alone gets to the heart of the gospel. Is there anything better than the unity we feel with one another as believers? The fellowship that we have. The true friendships that happen. Knowing others. Being known by others. And then experiencing real, tangible God with usness. Have you had that kind of fellowship where you know, man, Jesus is here. We feel his spirit in our love. Is there anything better than that? Anything better than being connected with other believers and knowing that you really are not alone? Even if, the, even if you feel alone, you know, I'm really not alone. I have people. This is why I want so much for each one of you to get connected with other people here at Grace. This is why I want you personally to be connected to other believers here at Grace. Okay, pray that God, the Spirit of God has someone out there, a few people that you can connect with and become friends and open up your heart and share your struggles with. doesn't mean that when you get connected here, you have to show up and confess all your sins. You can. We don't care. We know you're a sinner. You're not going to surprise us. Okay? If you join a Sunday school class and then you start confessing your sins, we're like, hey, you fit in here because we're all sinners here. We're not saying you have to show up and say, hey, this is what I dealt with yesterday. We just want you to get connected because it's here at Grace, in this family, in gospel community that we hear over and over again about Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and that is the gateway to not being alone, the cross. The heart of the gospel is, I am not alone. The heart of the gospel is, I have a savior and I have a family, a church family. 
Listen, you have a church family here. Whether you're, when you may come in and leave. You have people here that don't even know you that if you open up and say, this is what I'm struggling with, I promise you the DNA of this church is grace and love. We will come alongside you even if we don't know you and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me see if I can help in some way, okay? Get involved here. Nobody here should feel alone. Nobody here should walk alone. But you have to reach out, okay? You have to show up. You have to share how you feel or we won't know. We're not mind readers here, okay? You have to open up. You're safe to do that here. If you're not involved in a Sunday school class, let me encourage you to get involved and get to know your family. We have classes at 9 o'clock and at 10.30. We have a new one, the sermon discussion class, starting up October 9th in several weeks. Show up. A bunch, all, maybe all, a bunch of new people will show up, so that's your perfect time to slide in, Okay? Or come to Sunday evening prayer at 5.30 and then go to the evening service and hang around. Get to know your church family. And then, secondly, step up to serve somewhere. It's another way that you get involved and build relationships. Come on Wednesday nights and serve in Awana. Now, don't show up on Wednesday night and say, I'm here to serve because we're, we protect our children here. We do background searches. So if you want to serve in Awanda, contact Randy Georgie, call the church office. We need to get, your, get you background cleared, fingerprinted, all that. We're just not going to throw you in a classroom full of kids because we believe we need to protect our children here. But if you want to serve in Awanda and listen to kids cite, recite verses, you can do that. Come on Sunday morning and say, hey, I want to help make coffee. It's a great way to serve. Greet people at the doors. Just find a place to serve and you will get to know people and you will be on your way to leaving behind, I feel alone. And you will begin to experience the heart of the gospel, which is, I have a savior and I have a family. That's how you get connected. So you show up, you share your heart, you tell people what's going on in time when you feel safe and and then three You serve others. And when you do that, you will discover that you are not alone. You're not alone. You have not been abandoned. You are not being ignored by God right now, no matter what is happening in your life. God's saying, I'm not ignoring you. I gave you a whole church family. Like, you need to show up. Here I am. All these people will love you. It will be me loving you through them. But you got to show up. The big idea over your life and the main promise of the Bible is I am with you. Believe it. The banner over your life right now, regardless of how you think, regardless of how you feel, the banner over your life right now is this promise from Jesus. I am with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you don't just save individual disciples, individual people, and have us live our lives in isolation like some kind of monk or something, Lord. You've saved a people, your family, your brothers and sisters. You brought us into the family of God. Lord, when we feel alone or think we're alone, would you remind us that we're not. Your spirit is living inside of us and you and your kindness have given us a church family. Help us to reach out, Lord, when we don't want to.
Thank you for opening the doorway through the cross, not just to the family of God, the church, but opening up the heart of God to us. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen.